Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Casper. This is Frank Pelican. This is episode 114, uh, and it's the actual episode 114. Um, uh, last week or two weeks ago, I mistakenly called it 114 um, when it was 113. Uh, but this is episode 114 of the podcast, and tonight we are covering the top five horror movies of 1995. Um, how do you feel about the list tonight, Frank? Uh, it's a pretty good list. Um I mean, I don't know that every one of these movies is a classic, but I think that all of them are still pretty enjoyable to watch. Um, there's definitely a lot of, uh, how to say it, there's definitely a great amount of ambition, I guess, in this list, in terms of like the filmmakers like trying to do more with less in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um and you can tell they're all like labors of love like nothing is a well uh, maybe one of them is kind of just like a studio production but most of them really feel like the people that made the movies cared about the stories they were telling and weren't just trying to churn out some quickie like horror movie right so i have one question here for you and that so normally, like, I think you do the same thing. Like, you know, <clears throat> I look through Google and look through Wiki and kind of see, like, everything that came out that year and everything. And looking at looking at Wikipedia, one of the things I noticed was that there's a um, lot less movies, it feels like, in this year, horror movies, than the rest of the years of the 90s we've looked at so far. Like, yeah. Normally, I'm scrolling a little bit further and not like basically scrolling like two clicks worth of scrolling and I'm done. Like, I mean, um, there's no so, so was a decent amount of um, horror movies released this year. There's a lot of notable stuff, I think, this year, yeah. But I mean, it's I think it's less than 40 movies when normally, that's probably true, yeah. When normally there's like closer to like you know, somewhere between like 80, you know, around 80 or so, um. Do you have any idea why that might be? Um, and then also what I kind of normally ask you, like, what do you see going on in 1995, like in terms of horror in general? Well, it's a whole lot of direct video releases. I mean, there's not a huge amount of theatrical releases in this year. And it also, and we'll talk more about this next month, but generally like, people considered horror to be a dead genre Mm. like that it was i mean all those years of like critics i think just sort of lambasting it as you know throwaway and unnecessary and even like good horror movies being called like trash and you know i think people have kind of moved away from it for the most part so you had the I wouldn't call them major studios, but you had the, um, um, like the big, uh, fuck, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like indie release studios, like the independent, like, um, I don't know, like, uh, fuck, what's their name? Uh, we talk about them all the time. Full Moon Production. Full Moon, yeah. Doing stuff here. Um, Canon is at like the end of their life. So they're putting out some movies, um, but it's not a whole lot of, you know, I think 
even the number three movie on the list is released through a subsidiary of you know a major um major studio so major studios aren't necessarily putting a lot of money into uh horror movies but i think every movie on this list is an american production i'm pretty sure so um that's the other thing too is that there's was a couple movies that weren't available for us to watch at least one specifically um that i used to have on dvd but i couldn't find and it wasn't available anywhere to like rent or stream or anything. Um, and that's uh, Haunted, um, which was an early uh, Kate Beckinsale, Aiden Quinn movie. Um, Kate Beckinsale is like really young in it, like early 20s, I think. That's like basically a kind of by the numbers, but also like really well done Victorian ghost story. Um, and then there was uh April Ferrara directed um Addiction this year. Uh, right. Christopher Walken and Lily Taylor uh, and Edie Falco in like an early role. But then I kind of like that movie too. Um, but it's not like the best movie. Um, and there's a lot of sequels. Like for the most part, you know. I noticed there. Yeah, there's a lot of sequels. There's also a lot of comedies. Yeah. Um, like that was Blood, th- Blood and Donuts is a comedy. Um, what what's the um. Eddie Murphy vampire movie of that year. Vampire um, in Brooklyn. Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah, um, even even like Demon Knight has comedic right. elements to it. Um, yeah, Leprechaun Three, which is a sequel but also a comedy. You know, um, right? Mosquito. Um, Tales from the Hood has comedy elements to yeah, it. Tales from the Hood is like a horror. The comedy. Texas Chainsaw movie that you don't like. The Next Gen is um, has comedy elements to it. Yeah, that movie's fucking terrible. Um, Dracula Dead and Loving is this year, I think. 94 or 95 i can't remember what year it came out but yeah there's also a lot of comedy so what's what's that about i mean again it was a way to make horror movies like acceptable socially Mm -hmm. because you're you know taking the piss out of them so to speak so like if you're making fun of yourself then it's more difficult for people to come after you but sure you're right at the end of the whole um i mean this is the start of the idea of like censorship and well, kind of the midway point in terms of like music, but in like film and um, other media. So video games are starting to talk about like doom and stuff like that as being too violent and Wolfenstein, you know, so they're starting to look at like, do these video games cause people to um, kill people? And it's sort of a leftover um, kind of relic from the 80s with the British video nasties um, scare with the idea that people could watch a horror movie and be inspired to like murder other people. So I also think that over the next, I mean, we've talked about this several times during the podcast, but this is the beginning of CNN and court TV around this time. And so when things would happen and these cases would come up, like it got 24 seven media coverage. So people were starting to hear, you know, like, um, that fucking asshole from Vermont, uh, what's his fucking name? Um, Joe Lieberman, you know, like people like that. Um, Tipper Gore had a, you know, a national whatever soapbox every night. Like people yeah. just talking about, you know, how terrible Hillary was gone. Were. Hillary was gone after people around that time too. Yeah. yeah, like how terrible things were and how 
cop killer like was like right. a, about a year before this i think music and movies and video games and print media um there's a really famous case with a comic book artist um i can't remember what the name of the comic was i mean it's terrible it's something angel like some something angel anyway it was just some indie comic this guy made but it was like really vile and vulgar but people tried to have it banned because of the content and then there was a huge up uproar um in the print like in the comic media about defending this guy um fuck i wish i could remember what that comic was called um but defending this guy and his right to make you know whatever he wanted and it's funny because now we're shit almost 30 years past that point and we're back in the same position like except that now it's more socially acceptable to condemn things because they've changed it from how does it influence people to do bad things to how does it affect someone's feelings and cause them to be like sad or whatever so i don't know yeah or be triggered or you know yeah which in a lot of ways is a good thing because you don't have like graphic rape in movies anymore as like a titillating factor um you know there's a lot less um like homophobia in movies and people using like someone's sexual orientation or um race as like a punchline you know that's a lot less frequent now and also like called out a lot more readily whereas even still in 95 like that's still a you know an easy way for someone to get a laugh or oh absolutely yeah i mean shit we just watched um gone in 60 seconds right or uh the quick cage and That's you've got like, yeah. misogyny and homophobia both in there yeah. and um race yeah um as punchlines for like three or four jokes sure and and that's, that's like in, 2000 that's, yeah. yeah five years after this so right um but yeah no i mean uh, again, I, yeah i i get your point like in some ways it's gonna it, it'll lead to innovation i think in a lot of things um by being a bit more sensitive but like at the same time, I mean, I, you, it, it's not an invalid point at all to sit there and say that like some things have been lost to time. I mean, look at uh, I, I always forget his name. Um, dragged across concrete. Um, oh yeah, um, Timothy Zoller. Yeah. Um, like, like his movies are don't get a lot of attention a lot of times. Um, they're all very highly rated among audiences, but they're throwbacks to a different time. And he does have a hard time with funding a lot of times because, and there's nothing necessarily offensive in the sense of um, anything that you just mentioned, really. It's more about like the kind of violent nature of, of things and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are people that... Uh, their voices I mean, aren't heard because of just the tendency towards moving away from violent stuff sometimes. Like, again, I don't want to, like, shoot our 96 load too early, but uh-huh. you're about to move into horror being considered a different way, like yeah. more of a meta look at horror. And even throughout today, you know, I I think that in the past 20 years, we've experienced kind of like the golden age of horror. And a lot of that comes from the fact that directors have just changed the stories they're telling or how they're telling them. 
so you still can have like really good slasher movies and ghost movies and monster movies but they tend to be more about something instead of just the titillation of watching someone you know get stalked and killed it's it's like sure so the heart as an example of what you're saying, like, what, what's the movie that we did on the Fresh Five with the uh, horror movies? I cannot remember titles, but um, with the with the uh, daughters, like the, the daughter, the granddaughter and the grandma. Oh, the relic, the relic like that movie doesn't get made. Until more women are behind the camera, um, sure. you know, I mean, and it's a great great damn horror movie you know i mean but that movie doesn't get made 10 years ago even i don't think right and i i think that what you're seeing here is just this weird like transitory phase of you can look at it because it's kind of happening it kind of happened with action movies at a certain point where they just there was this glut of you know you look at the stuff that we love from the 80s like predator and commando and Rambo and I don't know, like all those like action, you know, army themed movies. And it's just like the tough guy. I don't know, like leading man, stoic, whatever, like quippy one liners like the Dirty Harry or the, you know, John Rambo, like those movies kind of imploded in a way. And then it took stuff like and I know you're not huge fans of these movies, but you look at stuff like taken um that series um the way that they kind of re-examined james bond even though i'm not a huge fan i've only seen a couple of those craig bonds but you know it's a different take on the same idea and it kind of modernizes it and so now yeah and you I know think one of the and then you oh, also see like um like a uh, denzel doing um the equalizer stuff. I've also noticed a tendency like with Liam Neeson, Denzel, and now Odenkirk doing that nobody movie. Oh yeah. There yeah. was also a tendency in recent years towards the older um like retired protagonists. Um and, and it's like actually casting people in their fifties and sixties um in a lot of those action roles, which is totally different from the bo- the the muscular, you know, thirty somethings of, you know, the eighties and stuff like that. And women too. I mean you have sure. um I really haven't seen any of them because it's not, that's just not one of my favorite genres, but salt Hannah, right? Yeah. Oh, um, Hannah's really good. Actually. Yeah. I, I liked Hannah. Um, salt was not good, but um, I did not. That. What is it? Red Sparrow or something like that? Isn't that what it's called? Something like that. I haven't, you know, I haven't watched that one. But I, don't know, I mean, you know, I think that making movies for the majority of my life, horror films were very much niche genre things that it was something where if you liked horror movies you were definitely in opposition to the majority of people that you would meet because most people didn't really care for them and i think you know like involving you know i mean you you can't say enough about people like jordan peele or you know whatever that have like elevated the idea of what the horror movie is to something greater than just again like like sheer titillation or you know, as much as I love stuff like The Prowler and whatever, I mean, what do you really gain from that movie after watching it? Like, you're basically just watching it to watch people get, you know, pretend murdered. Sure. And with stuff like Us and Get Out, and um, I'm hoping, you know, this reboot of the Candyman franchise, like, it's it's about more than that. So it's telling yeah. 
stories that appeal to a broader swath of people in a way that's more digestible to those people and yet still you know hits the purpose of what a horror movie is there for which is to make you examine you know your own fears and your own fallacies and you know your own like dark secrets and whatever like anything that a good horror movie brings out of you so i don't know yeah we're not at this point in 1995 so most people are not not. yeah we're just kind of we're we're just getting ready to get into the first uh, yeah because what it is is like uh, it feels to me like looking at those comedies and i've seen a few of those they're apologizing for the genre right now like is what i would say in 95 where the comedic aspects that we start seeing next year and moving forward for a while is not apologizing for the genre right it's it's accepting the you know the nature of the genre and doing meta comedy um in a lot of ways um and we've seen a little bit of that i think with talking about the new nightmare last month um especially in the first 30 minutes maybe of that movie um, I, would, I would argue you see that a little bit in one of these movies on this list. Yeah, I can see that. I know what you're... Yeah, I, 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 I genuinely consider one of these movies to be uh, a comedy. Yeah, I do so. Uh-huh. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then it's like, you know, it's almost like you need that... Um, What is it? It's almost like uh, what's coming up here in, like, I would say, 96 and then beyond for probably, like, what? Like, you think of, like, another 10 years is kind of like a palate cleanser. Yes, and also before it can be officially kind of rebooted in some ways, some palate cleansing and some like crass, um, commercial attempts yeah. like sure. glom onto a a movie that I mean we'll just say it's Scream, you know, that kind of revolutionized yeah, 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 sure. like theatrical horror in a lot of ways, right. um, and then created its own really far-reaching um genre of imitators mm-hmm. of the the meta meta horror comedy yeah that still takes itself that's and that's the difference is like you talk about something like leprechaun 3 or right. demon knight or tales from the hood where it's not taking the horror seriously the horror is there basically to set up the joke and with stuff like scream it's the opposite where the joke is a dark extension of the actual horrific act that's being shown to you on the screen. If that right. makes sense. No, it does. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot. That's yeah. Um, anything you want to shout out real quick before we get started? Like in terms that of we didn't other, talk about. Yeah. Other movies. So. Um, there was a movie that I didn't watch until after we made the list, uh, called, um, day of the beast. Mm hmm that's sort of a horror comedy it's it's hard to explain it's very um uh i think it's spanish language um that was pretty decent um but i didn't see it and it was too late to to add to the list at the point that um that we would have put it on there um species I don't think it's a very good movie, but I think it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about just because um, it did pretty well in the box office and it was sort of like a like a decent callback to Alien or whatever, um, but not a very good movie. Um, Carpenter's Village of the Damned is a good movie, but I just he's in that phase where like his movies don't feel as edgy, I guess, is like I kind of think earlier stuff had 
um, and I don't like it as much. Um, I actually think Demon Knight and Tales from the Hood are both decent movies. I just they're a little too much comedy for me. Um, Farewell to the Flesh, the Candyman sequel, is ninety five, and it's a really disappointing movie because it should be so much better than it is, and it just falls flat. <clears throat> Especially with like one of the worst end sequences, like maybe ever committed to film. I don't know if have you ever seen that the sequel. I, I, I have not. No. It's basically the ancestral home of wherever, like, Candyman's dead pregnant girlfriend or whatever, like, they go back to it, and then it's swirling away in this vortex, basically, like, as the water flood. I don't know. It's it's uh-huh. the worst CGI. Um, there's a really weird movie this year called um, The Passion of Darkly Noon. It's a early Brendan Fraser well, not early because I guess like he was in school ties and shit, but it's a weird like indie Brendan Fraser movie that um I always had mixed feelings about when I was when I was young. I really should have watched it again. Um, because there was stuff about it that I thought was really cool. It's got a very like dreamy, almost like Twin Peaks esque feel to it. Hmm. Um but I also like hated it in some ways when I was a kid, so I don't know if I felt like watching it again. Yeah. Oh. Have, have you ever seen Blood and Donuts by any chance? Uh-uh. No. no. You should watch. You should try to find that and watch that sometime. I, oh, I remember. I remember liking it in like '96 or something like that. Um, uh, was it a show. Wesley movie? It was. Yeah. Um, and I think I think he knew about it because Cronenberg has a cameo in it. Um, and because the Canadian uh, filmmaker Holly Dale, um, it's her first like movie. Um, I don't know if she's done much after that, but I remember liking it. Um, it's a, it was a different take on the vampire story. Um, of like this, uh, vampire who wakes up after 25 years and is kind of like uncertain about getting back into society and then grows to actually care for the people, um, uh, that he meets and stuff like that. Um, it was, it was interesting. Um, it doesn't sound bad. You but, know, the vampire movies are my least favorite genre of, I do. Why? Things. Also, why do you think there are so many vampire movies this year? That's another real quick question for you. Because everybody saw how much money um, fucking Coppola's Dracula and interview, with, interview vampire. with Vampire made. Yeah, and so they were like, yeah. "Oh shit!" Yeah, got to revive. And the next year, I think there's a bunch too. Yeah, you yeah. still got Dracula 2000 comes out in right. 90s, I think. Right. And um. Carpenter's Vampires is like within a couple of years of ninety seven, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of vampire mm-hmm. movies that come out. Uh, last thing I'll ask you is what do you what do you think of Demon Knight? It's fine. Okay. I mean, it's it's that high production value. Um, you know what? I it's 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 not my thing. Yeah. Because it's too it like I I don't know. I hate horror that's always apologizing for itself by trying to I don't mind horror comedy either. Like I think that there's a, a real place for horror comedy within like right just the general like whatever um genre of horror. But I don't know. Like I, I feel like Demon Knight is one of those things where it's like a like, wink and a nudge, yeah. like, hey, we're not really making a horror movie here. I gotcha. Yeah. Like we're gonna make it so goofy looking that there's no way you could ever Sure. Like get scared by anything in the yeah. Movie. It's like a comic book version, almost like a like a of it, like to some degree, yeah. like a like pal bam, like you know, um, 
any real horror always has to have an element that the creators are genuinely trying to make you uncomfortable or scare you in some way. Sure. And I don't mind comedy in addition to that, but like, don't like Dracula dead and loving it. Like, I don't consider that a, a horror movie. That's a fucking what Zucker Abram Zucker, right? Comedy. And yeah, like that, that shit. Like I don't got no place in my life. So, mm-hmm. gotcha. although I do enjoy, um, what's his name in that movie? Uh, Leslie Nielsen. So. Yeah. All right. So uh, before we move on to the list tonight, I just wanted to uh, update everybody on uh, the next three months as we move through the rest of the summer and into, I guess, the very beginning of fall, maybe. Um, And uh, next month in July, we will be um, we're kind of pairing some things up um, in July and August. So in July, we first week, we will be doing a watch along of Predator 2. and then the week after that, we will be moving into Frank's top five underrated sequels. Uh, Predator 2 also kind of falls into that category. So we're kind of breaking out Predators 2 and doing a watch along. And then uh, we will be um, you know, doing the underrated sequels. And then, of course, the 96 horror list will be in July. August, we are going to be doing the top five overrated sequels um, ever. And... The also that month, um, friend of the podcast, Michael Bletso, uh, confirmed for me a day he's going to join us to discuss uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman uh, trilogy. Um, <laughs> and then we will be covering the 97 horror list. September, we have a month of crime um, where we will be doing the next top five crime films in the 1970s and we will be doing the top five elmore leonard adaptations capped off by the 98 horror list and then in october uh we will just be covering a month of horror um as we have every year so far on the podcast um and be ending of course with the 99 horror list um that month so um and then quickly we'll be moving honestly we have the rest of the year almost planned out like a fresh five in november um and then we'll be moving into the um the the year-end lists that we do 71 81 91 2001 um we'll be covering uh the best films of those years in november and december so uh so that's what we have coming up and uh all right, so number five on your list of the top five horror movies in 1995, Frank, is Sleepwalker, subtitle, The Sandman's Last Rites. Sleepstalker. What did I say? Sleepwalker is the oh, yes, weird yes. pseudo-Stephen King adaptation. Yeah, yeah, Sleepstalker. Sorry. That will not be on um, the list. <laughs> it is directed by Turi Meyer. Uh, it stars Jay Underwood, Catherine Harris, Michael Harris, William Lucking, and Michael D. Roberts. All people you will you have seen at some point in something or another um and it has is not rated um by critics on Rotten Tomatoes and it has a 26% from audiences uh so i know there's this is, has an asterisk next to it um uh, because there's a couple other movies you might have put on this list i think you said frank um certainly um, haunted but um why is this number 5 on your list um but what is it about first i guess so 17 years ago prior to the start of this movie um this family is murdered by the serial killer the sandman um mother and father uh son is left alive um the guy is like typically difficult to kill as all serial killers and horror movies are um to the point where they can't 
kill him by shooting him, so they take him to the electric chair. Um, he's visited by a priest while in jail, um, who is actually like an evil, like Satanistic voodoo priest, um, who confers upon the Sandman the ability to inhabit a body of sand. Um, but he has to kill all of his blood relatives in order to stay alive. So you fast forward the 17 years. Um, the little kid is now a man, um, and starts to be stalked by, um, the supernatural presence of the sleep stalker um who's trying to murder him so he can fulfill whatever like this voodoo curse because you find out that uh, the family that he murdered those were the kids adoptive parents um and their father who was an alcoholic is actually sleep stalker is actually the brother of the main character um and their father was an alcoholic and like abused them and um one of the worst like time jumps in terms of like kids ages like where so the sleep stalker is supposed to be what like a few years older than this kid right like i can't remember what ages they say but it's not like a huge like disparity in their ages really and then like 10 years maybe oh yeah i would say that's about right it's like the i'm I'm not saying they're not like 20 years like different or whatever right but it's like a teenager and a child in the um, flashbacks where you see the father abusing him. And then all of a sudden it's this full grown man and still a child. Like when he comes to murder the adopted parents. And then obviously he's like an immortal fucking sand monster in the end. And the guy still looks like he's like 19, 20 years old. Um, it's not. So this is not a good movie but it's a very i i really like movies that invest in their own mythology to the point where like it matters to the characters and to the story that there's this like mythos that they create around this idea of this guy like being this kind of almost unstoppable force with the exception of the fact that as long as you know, one of his blood relatives remains alive that he can still be killed and whatever, which I think is like a really cool conceit. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the special effects in it are laughable, but some of the special effects for being like a super low budget direct video release are actually pretty decent. Um, the acting is not great, but it's definitely like the people are invested in it, like no one's phoning it in, I guess. That's a com- um, you know what, real quick, that's a common complaint. Like among people, like the audience, like a lot of audience members um, on Rotten Tomatoes, about the acting. Maybe it's because I've seen a lot of bad fucking horror in the past year, but I didn't think the acting was that bad in this. Right, considering well, because everybody is invested in the idea of trying to give it their all. Yeah. Like, look, there's there's that scene early on where they're all in um fuck i don't know like every set like you can never tell like what the set's supposed to be whether it's like a an office or a bar or whatever they're all gathered together it's the four of them uh-huh. um the guy and his girlfriend and then the best friend and the other girl best friend yeah and like it's not good dialogue but it's no. delivered in a way that like you kind of believe that these people know each other and have a relationships with each other right and that's the thing is that the script is really poor which always makes you feel like the acting is poor, but it's not. I mean, there's definite definite investment. Um, you didn't mention them in the actors, but you know, you got Ken Forey, 
um, in a minor role here as a cop who, um, you know, he's just being himself, like this icon of like seventies horror. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the main character is Jay Underwood, which is probably best known for the boy who could fly. Um, do, do you think he's best known for that? Is he how best many, known for Sleepstalker? Oh no, no, no! Uh, I'm mean, just saying, how many people outside of like everybody like I, who, who everybody who grew up in the 1980s, like you think in the so? early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like nobody saw that movie. I, I think everybody knows that. What's your favorite part of the boy who could fly? Um, the when he uh, Fred Savage is burying the GI Joes and stuff like that. Yeah, that's the right answer. Yeah, when he's um, sitting there talking about like how he's got to like one of them got blown up, so he's got to get buried and yeah. yeah. But he's also been in. He was also an Uncle Buck. I mean, like um, uh, the Invisible Kid, like uh, which is something to his credit, like. Um, he was on 21 Jump Street at one point, like, so, I mean, he's done stuff. I mean, um, and he still continues to work this day off and on, but, um, uh, but it's him, Catherine Morris, who ends up, um, best known for, um, Cold Case, which ran for years on CBS. Great, terrible show, but I mean, like, she, she's well known for that. She was the star. Um, Michael D. Roberts, who's more known for the 70s being in Beretta. Um, William Lucking, who played Piney on Sons of Anarchy, is what he's best known for. But I mean, like, there, there's people that are, like, had success in their lives, and they're not, they're decent actors. I mean, Again, I'm not shitting on that. I think that they're, I, I think that there's definite investment. Like, I think that they are trying to make the best of what they got to work with. Yeah. Again, I'm, really... I'm, just, I'm just sensitive to it because I go read all these damn audience comments and see everybody talking about how bad the acting is, and it's like, it's really not considering. And I mean, I don't, I don't care about those people. Um, fucking audience score on Rotten Tomatoes means jack shit to me, honestly. Unless I hate the movie too, and then I find it as like a weird validation, um, validation of my own like misanthropy. But... Right. Um, if if I don't agree with it, I'm like, ah, people are assholes. Like, why can't anybody enjoy anything? <laughs> or uh, people are assholes. Like, why does everybody love all this crap? <laughs> so I don't know. Whatever. Um. Anyway, it's it's a pretty disposable movie, but being like as bad as most low budget horror is, it's definitely watchable. It's there's a lot of love that was put into it. I think by the people that created it. Um, and it's you know. I think it's worth sitting down and watching. Now, is it better than like some of the stuff we left off the list for various reasons? Nah, you know, but it's not a movie that you would ever talk about on any list ever, unless it's like maybe horror movies involving sand. But even then, I think it might not make that list. So, what's the what's the what's what's the best movie a horror movie involving sand? Uh, maybe Curse of the Mummy, the um. Uh, what's his name? Um, Karloff, I guess, is the mummy in that. Is that right? I think so. The universal one, the one that you probably fucking hate. Yeah, right. Um, so we're, we're definitely not doing the top five horror movies involving Sam, then. No, uh, you probably don't want to do that. You're, you, are, you are getting one episode ever of the top five horror movies before um, 1970, and, and then we're done. That's fucking fucked up. <laughs> Can I, can I, can I, can I enjoy things? Um, 
yeah, I mean, I thought this movie. I, I, I guess I just enjoy them on my own. This, um, I thought this movie was decent. Like I, like you said, I think it's a. You could tell it's kind of like a labor of love, and I, I thought that it was. I thought it got worse the longer it went, and only because it just kind of drags the story out after a certain point, to the point where I was like, I don't think I texted you about it, but I still had to like mention it later in the day, where it was like, you know, it was a little long. <laughs> I don't think it I had to text. I didn't. I don't think I like was reacting so poorly to it at the time, like that I had to text you, but I was like, it, it's just drug in the last like four sure. minutes or so, but. But again, I think that's a demonstration that it was made by people that actually cared about sure. the movie they were making. Like, he, yeah. this dude was invested in this fucking mythological monster he made up. And again, like, to my point earlier about, you know, how the movies of today are about something else. I mean, this is about, yeah, it tries to be about, you know, like surviving abuse and, sure. you know, how a terrible childhood can affect like people one way or the other and you know having ptsd and stuff so there yeah there's definitely more going on than just a traditional like slasher you know monster movie so yeah agreed i would actually like to see this general plot rewritten and remade as a different movie and i think maybe it would be um yeah yeah like actually probably pretty effective in a really good like horror movie but yeah i agree with that i got no clouds saying fucking gonna happen all right, so number four on your list is Ice Cream Man, directed by Norman Epstein. It stars Clint Howard in the title role. It also stars Justin Isfeld, Andy McAfee, Jojo Adams, Olivia Hussey, and David Warner. It also has uh, no score from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a 44% from audiences. Um, with this uh, appearance on the list, David Warner has now surpassed Gene Hackman as the actor who appears the most time so far throughout the podcast with six appearances. Um, appearances in six different movies. Um, so kudos to Frank makes, for that. That makes everything right in the world. Yeah. Um, I like David Warner, but your love of David Warner is something I will never understand. Like um, he's, he's he's the perfect fucking villain, man. It borders on devotion, like. Um, what you have for him uh so yeah so tell us a little bit about this one and uh why it's on the list oh man so this is this is the one that i consider to be the comedy yeah um clint howard plays uh gregory um who is a psychopathic emotionally stunted grown man that operates an ice cream truck um, where he sells ice cream that is sometimes mixed with body parts of his murder victims um, and, like, roadkill and shit. Um, despite being an absolute creep with no sanitation standards, um, people, like, eat all his ice cream, and he's generally, like, kind of liked, I think, by the people in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that he was at a mental institution as a youth where he was abused, um, but kind of fell under the favor of this nurse who, after she retired, sort of took him in and kind of became his surrogate mother, um, although she's insane as well and doesn't see that he's an absolute cretin. Um, he's kidnapping children, basically, and there's a subplot 
that's not necessarily fully explored about the idea that he looks at himself as being the Pied Piper, where he's like removing, you know, these children from this terrible world and taking them to a better place. Or, you know, on the opposite, he's um, removing terrible people from the world to also make the world a better place. So one way or the other. Um, These three kids that call themselves the Rocketeers, um, which I thought was a reference to the Rocketeer, but it was just because they have like um, those toy rockets that you launch in the air on the front of their bikes, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, they discover that he's kidnapping people, um, especially uh, little Paul, um, who's this like undersized friend of theirs who gets taken by the ice cream man, which is another subplot where the ice cream man is kind of grooming him to be the next ice cream man because he sees himself in little Paul. Um, right. It's actually not much horrific happens for about. 50 minutes of this movie and then they just start like cramming all this shit with the ice cream man just like murdering people um really like goofy dialogue there's like in the whatever like the if you read about this movie um they talk like they've acknowledged this as a comedy like later that they weren't trying to make a comedy but they acknowledge how funny it was but I don't see how you make this movie and not see like the humor elements in it. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, most of Clint Howard's dialogue um, as Gregory is laughable. And it's all like ice cream puns and really bad ice cream puns, too. And this weird obsession with butter brickle, which I don't even know what the fuck that is, but that's like <laughs> apparently like the best ice cream flavor ever. And like everyone wants the butter brickle and it's really hard to make. Um, some really laughable special effects there's honestly a pretty hilarious scene where clint howard is carrying the heads of two police officers that he's um killed and decapitated off screen and doing like a puppet show with him mm-hmm. as he's chasing um two members yeah. of the rocketers um around this tiny little yard basically which i don't know how like it didn't whatever like it's basically like a 10 by 10 yard that they run around three times and then jump over the same fence. But um, also a hilarious scene where these two completely inept cops who are on the trail of the ice cream man, um, very lackadaisically on the trail. Cause they're just like, well, let's just kind of sit here and see what happens. Um, they go to the mental institution where um, Gregory was um, incarcerated as a kid. And it's <laughs> the most ridiculous like view of a, I don't know, like a mental hospital ever. It's it's kind of like the dystopian look of like Twelve Monkeys mental institution, but on like a five dollar budget. Yeah. So basically, like they just went to this abandoned building and spray painted on the walls and had people kind of like slouch around and like moan and I don't know. Right. Which also it also kind of makes it a little horrific at the end because like when you're watching it, you're, it's 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 pretty uncomfortable. Like you know these people in dressing gowns just like slobbering on themselves and um so in the end the ice cream man gets his come up and by getting pushed into the um the ice cream mixer or whatever that they reference like a dozen times that ah oh, you cut your hand off if you put it in there okay there's a really hilarious scene in this movie where after little paul or small paul i'm sorry small paul 
gets um taken by the ice cream man and um this kid who you're supposed to think is fat because they put him in like six layers of clothing right but is obviously not like really fat because he's got a really thin head and thin neck and you can see like the clothing like bulging out in weird places um whose nickname is tuna in the movie um after small tuna is my favorite yeah Yeah. tuna's hilarious tuna and his older brother-in-law's whatever his older sister's boyfriend's obsession with the fact that they call him tuna and that he's fat which is anyway so the cops like get a warrant out of nowhere to go and search the ice cream man's place and go in and destroy like everything inside the ice cream man's like shop but small paul is behind like one piece of plywood so like even though they've just like like pints of ice cream they've knocked them over and there's ice cream everywhere and they're like smashing like drawers where obviously small paul couldn't fit the one place that has like the hidden room like nobody bothered to touch fucking ridiculous yeah um and then they eat his ice cream butter brickle so yeah so the end of the movie is that small paul is now been institutionalized because of his experiences um and he's making ice cream and smiling evilly and i guess that's the idea they there was a planned sequel that never got made or maybe in like the mid-2000s um that is still like possibly in development yeah so i guess that would be the thing is like small paul like coming back and being the new ice cream man right. um so yeah so is it a good movie like no but it's a lot of fun and i think that clint howard i i love this movie when i was a kid because i in the way that you accused me of being obsessed with david warner i probably legitimately was obsessed with clint howard at one point mm-hmm. because he is singularly the most uncomfortable man to look at yes especially when they when his makeup is done a certain way where like there are angles of his face that don't seem it's like when you read lovecraft and they talk about like non-euclidean geometry or something like <laughs> yes i think of clint <laughs> howard's face like that's there's <laughs> angles that shouldn't exist and it's just like i mean he overacts in it <laughs> like over the top but it's yeah. really funny the stuff with the kids is hilarious like fucking they're at the dinner and they're talking about tuna and the jock boyfriend who wants to become a cop is like tuna i don't get it it's like they call him tuna like what does that even mean i know it's a ridiculous scene and he just keeps going on and then but what a great way to like make him look like a fucking buffoon right 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 it it works Uh uh-huh but my favorite scene in the movie from like a purely like directing standpoint like i think it's actually really well done is the scene when Tuna is in the grocery store with his mom and the ice cream man realizes who he is and then chases him around the grocery store and uh-huh. Tuna has to like hide like under things and behind things yeah. and can't find his mom. I mean, it's the closest that the movie comes to true like tension and uh-huh. really like trying to set up something to be scary. And on the opposite side of that, there's a scene where the kids are out at night on their bikes and they see the ice cream man coming and they're like, get down. And all they do is like sort of like slump their shoulders on the bikes. But that's enough where like nobody can see him. Yeah, there's that scene, too, when like he goes to the graveyard and like 
they're like behind like this like the worst bush of all time right. <laughs> like hiding um behind it which is really funny um i don't know i i had seen at least most of this movie when i was younger i think but like i honestly didn't remember a lot of it watching it now i i really enjoyed watching this movie like i it found fun. it i found it very enjoyable i I mean, it to me it was like more of a throwback to the '80s a little bit with the kids. I mean, look, I mean, like, look at how popular like something like Stranger Things is right now, right? Like right. with the idea of these kids like kind of sneaking around and like investigating and like trying to figure things out. I thought it had ex- that exact feel in 1995 here, and um, did it really? I thought the child actors were great in this. Yes, yeah, they're the best part of the movie. And honestly, uh, it's 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 the two cops. And again, that's why I think this was an J- intentional J- comedy. J. Michael Vincent. <laughs> Is that they're so taciturn in the like the way they approach everything. It's like, yeah, well, ice cream man, we're gonna have to search your shop. Mm-hmm. But can I get some ice cream from you? And it's like, oh, that ice cream man, he's gotta be guilty. Yeah, let's just wait it out and see what happens. It's, it's, but then Jan Michael Vincent at times gets like real heated for like, for no like re- no, yeah, right. for like no reason. <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta get that ice cream man completely out of character. <laughs> like it's yeah, so like yeah, some of the adult performances that are like way over the top. I don't, I don't believe that they weren't writing a comedy. I don't believe I, from the opening scene where. Um, like all the stuff with what's her name, like uh, trying to like like that's having the, the affair and seduce right. the ice cream man. It's hilarious. Like and him like peeping around corners, like eh, and like running mm-hmm. away because yeah, he can't reconcile. I guess like the dirty feelings in his loins. Yeah. Um, right. yeah, like he feeds him an ice cream can with an eyeball, mm-hmm. like clearly pushed into it where you can see it. Right. Then the guy chews on it where it's like a rubber fucking eyeball, and he's just like rolling it around on his tongue. Yeah, and it's like, why do you not pull this out of your mouth and be like, "Oh shit!" Right? Like the fucking ice cream man just gave me an eyeball in my ice cream, but it's well, like, probably you know, thought it was like a cherry or something like that. Right? It was strawberry ice cream, so maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it's a, a really enjoyable movie. I, I honestly like in terms of just a pure enjoyment level. I like watched this on like I think on like a Friday afternoon or something. I, I and I loved it. Like, I it may be the most enjoyable movie on this list to me. That's good. Just in yeah, terms I mean, of it's, enjoyment, like right. you know, it's, it's fun to watch. It's eighty some minutes, so it goes by super fast. Um, it makes you laugh, like genuinely. I think mm-hmm. times, and again, like you get to look at Clint Howard for you know seventy of those eighty five minutes and just try and figure <laughs> out like you know how that man exists, right? What um, and like, look, Ron Howard's not the most handsome. He's gotten better as he's aged, I think, but he's like not the most handsome man in the world. But he looks um, normal. He looks like a right, right, right. And it's like, how did this person, like, you know, like, and then you, everybody knows. I mean, people that know movies know Rance Howard. You've seen him in something or something. Yeah, their father. And it's like, how the fuck did this thing come from, <laughs> from Rance Howard's genes? Like, I mean. Yeah, the first time you ever see Clint Howard, you think it's a joke. Like, you think <laughs> there's no way that the person can look like this. Yeah. And actually, as he's aged, he looks like a normal person. Now. He does, yeah. No, that's true. As a as an older older actor. Yeah. 
But man, those like early to mid nineties, like Clint Howard was your go to if you wanted somebody to look fucked up. Yeah, and there's some shit that he has in the eighties when he's even younger, and it's like because his head became rounder, I think somehow by the time the nineties comes about. Yeah. But it's like early in his career, it felt like his head was longer right. when he had like a little tufts of hair on his side. And it felt like his head was even longer, and it's like head was like feel abnormally long, and he looked even fucking weirder, honestly. Like seriously, they should have just made pumpkin head with him, like hmm. painted him orange and had him like wandering around because it's horrifying. Like, but yeah. I, but I fucking live, love Clint Howard. Like that dude, that he deserves all the credit in the world for making a career out of like of, of just accepting like that shit and just rolling with it, like. And and he's and he's decent in everything he does. Like I mean, yes, he's that's true. You know, um, yeah, like, he's definitely sir, um. I mean, yeah, he's acted for a really long time too. Yeah, I mean, because his first one of his first roles is when he's a child in that uh, Star Trek episode, right? You know what I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, I'm looking at his filmography right now. He's been around forever. Is that but, the um, eye for an eye? Is um, that it? Here, look anyway. At, look at the screen real quick, Frank. Do you remember that episode when he's a child? Yes. Yeah. Um <clears throat> Yeah, like that that's probably has to be one of his first roles. I mean he's really young there, but it's like you can already see like how kind of sloth looking. Um <clears throat> So just because I am pretty sure Heaster never listens to uh, the horror episodes, um, just to just to clarify here, what Butterbrickle is? Um, Butterbrickle is coffer- chocolate covered toffee. Um, but depending on where you grew up, apparently in the country and how old you are, um, you might call it Butterbrickle. Because it used to be called that until um, roughly the 70s. Um, the only remnant of it in anything that's produced nowadays, which I did not know this. Um, I knew a little bit about Butterbrickle because my grandfather used to call it Butterbrickle. Um, but uh, is uh, there's an ice cream that's still put out called Heath Bits of Brickle Toffee Bits. Oh, I've um, had that before. Yeah, and that's where like the Brickle part comes from is because it's chocolate covered toffee um so yeah that's what that's what's going on with the butter brick and why everybody loves it and it's good um uh i can't eat it anymore but i've had it before and it's good you can get some uh dairy free butter brickle maybe yeah as long as it's like you know they're using, it depends on the chocolate they're using but more than anything all right so yeah i really enjoy it so number three on your list is directed Not by as enjoyable. <laughs> um, directed by Gregory Wyden um, of Highlander fame. It is uh, the prophecy. It stars Christopher Walken, Elias Coteus, Virginia Madsen, Eric Stoltz, Amanda Plummer, Adam Goldberg, Viggo Mortensen, a few others. I don't have listed. It has a forty-three percent from critics and a sixty-four percent from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the list if it's not as enjoyable as Ice Cream Man? Um, so it's a, a religious apocalyptic 
um, narrative where the Archangel Gabriel, played by Walken, is um, fomenting a war between heaven and hell um, with his idea that he's going to create a second heaven, basically, um, by killing all the humans because he hates humanity. Um, so he has to find the soul of the most evil man that's ever lived, um, who turns out to be this Vietnam veteran who cannibalized people, I guess. Um, which seems like there's probably been more evil people than that, but like this is what we're going with. Um, Eric Stoltz is a different. I, uh, what, what's his Simon? Yeah. Um, the angel Simon, who's also come to Earth to try and prevent Walken from doing this. Um, so they're at odds with each other. Um, uh, Stoltz gets to um, the body of this dead uh, cannibal general first and takes his soul and then um as he's dying like transfers the soul or before he's about to die transfers the soul into this uh like seven-year-old girl which is like a pretty shitty thing to do kind of so simultaneously there's elias codius is uh your coteus however you say it um is a former priest who fell from grace because he saw the war between the angels or heaven and hell and it like drove him insane kind of so he abandoned his faith and became a, a police officer, a detective, homicide detective, I guess. Um, but he still has like all these like priest powers so he can like read Aramaic and recognize like whatever, like the signs of demonology. Um, so he figures out they find the body of um, Uriel, I think, is the other one, like this other angel that died and. Um, he had a like an ancient Bible in his pocket, so they he kind of de deduces um, all this shit about Arizona, where the body of this um, cannibal guy is. So they all kind of descend on this town um, with the idea that Walken wants to take the soul out of the little girl. Uh, Codius wants to protect her. Um, Madsen or um, what's her name? Uh, Virginia. Virginia Madsen's Catherine. Yeah, Virginia Madsen is like her teacher, and so she's trying to protect her. Um, Walken, you know, they all get there together, and then the devil's there, played by Viggo Mortensen, and the devil wants to help the humans because he doesn't want Walken to succeed because then it'll create like a second hell, and one hell is enough. Um, best part of the movie, by the way, is Viggo Mortensen's performance. Yes. Um, and that character showing up in that kind of like interesting way too i think yeah yeah um and it was sort of ripped off a little bit in the hellblaze constantine movie that came a few years after this mm -hmm. um sort of both in tone and execution um i think that's a better scene but i appreciate what bortonson does like in his limited time in this movie right. um so obviously the good guys succeed christopher walken gets beaten and dragged to hell um that's it so, I hated this movie when I first saw it, um, to give some context, because I was reading Hellblazer, the comic book series at the time, mm -hmm. um, and Hellblazer had almost beat for beat, and Preacher in some ways, these stories that it was so obvious that like they kind of ripped off the general ideas of these stories, and also because I kind of felt 
I still feel this way somewhat that religious horror is just way too easy because everything's already there for you. Like you're just kind of like picking and choosing what you want out of, um, you know, theological and like apocryphal texts and whatever. And you can make whatever movie you want. And they're all generally like roughly the same idea that, Oh, some evil force is trying to hasten the apocalypse and, this ragtag group of humans has to do what they can to like stand in the way of the, you know, whatever, like otherworldly forces of like the demons or the angelic host or whatever the fuck. Um, so if you would have asked me to make this list in 1995, this would not have been on the list because I hated this fucking movie. But like, as I've gotten older, I really come to appreciate number one, um, most of the performances aside from the two main like heroes, in um Codius and uh Madsen um actually put in some really good performances um Amanda Plummer's really good in it Christopher Walken's really good in it Stoltz is good in it Mortensen's good in it um Adam Goldberg has like this really good like light comedic element that he adds to it um, I, I love Amanda Plummer in it yeah it's just it's just good you know and it's even though it's a story that's kind of like trite and definitely ripped off from other sources they tell it pretty well um i love honestly one of the best portrayals of the devil on screen i think in any movie with um mortensen's yeah um like just like really suave and slick and handsome but also really disgusting. Like he's got like the dirty, like sharpened fingernails and you can see like dirt, like in the creases of his skin. Mm-hmm. And there's like blood on his teeth when he talks sometimes, I mean, yeah. it's just this really great portrayal of this guy that you could think of as like this tempter and this, you know, like dark figure, but also as like the ultimate epitome of like evil. <laughs> and I think the walking, I mean, this is like prime, walking years right here where he had sort of gotten a boost in his career from um mostly from like doing small roles and things yeah. like true romance and i think romance. And, yeah, yeah exactly um and really invested here in like a full like meaty role um in his delivery and his like glibness and mm-hmm. His like rising anger at times and just i don't know it's just yeah. it's a really good performance so. yeah for for such a like slightly better than mediocre horror movie like walken is like almost like a tour de force in this like i mean he to me he even though there's a lot of great performance he carries the entire movie yeah i agree yep i mean he definitely like you're waiting for him to come back on screen and Mm -hmm. the scene where he's sitting with the little kids outside of the high school or the school and trying to get him to play the trumpet to see if anybody's got this like soul in them to like right basically blow the trumpet of the apocalypse like that shit's um yeah and without over explaining it either, like there, he doesn't stay like, that's maybe something I didn't appreciate. And maybe now, like with decades of like watching really bad movies, I've come to appreciate like almost the subtle nuance of certain things in this movie where they're not a hundred percent talking down to you and like over enunciating what's happening. They're kind of just like letting it happen sometimes, which I appreciate. Um, my only complaint really is that how long is this movie? It it feels too long when you're watching it. Yeah, not 97 minutes. There's times where it just kind of like drags a little bit. 
it it drags because of the Coteus and Matson. It's yeah, their scenes. It's true. Because it's not really that big of a thing that they're trying to do. I mean, they're all just like getting to Arizona. Like, how difficult is right. that? But um, yeah, Plummer is fantastic in it. Like, she um it really is pretty uh scene stealing, like any time that her well, so the conceit is basically that um Gabriel can basically snatch a soul right at the moment that it's about to die and tether it back to its um human body and keep it alive um indefinitely like at his his mercy um so he does that with goldberg who's a suicide that he stops from killing himself um because and this is like maybe one of the unintentionally funny parts of the movie um he can't operate any technology like he can't drive a car or like use a telephone or do anything like he's completely inept to like any sort of like human convenience because he hates humans so much so he basically needs like chauffeurs and people to like use the phone book and whatever like do his like um his secretarial tasks so he damns someone to eternal life as a revenant basically to you know go drive a car for him yeah um it's a lot funnier when goldberg is doing it than Plummer's um that's really sad because yes yeah so that's actually the one point of the movie though that this is something I kind of want to talk to you about because it's something that bothered me as a kid and I I think maybe I have an answer for it now but I'm not exactly sure so Walken says at one point Gabriel that no one has been able to enter heaven for thousands of years because of this war between heaven and hell Mm-hmm. and like it's basically stopped everyone for and i think mortensen says it too right that like everyone's kind of just stuck like the souls can't move on they're all kind of just moldering in the grave mm-hmm. but then when Plummer is about to die she sees like the white light like she's going to heaven right so i guess that you're supposed to infer that even at this point i mean they and they say this explicitly in the movie but Walken has no idea what's happening in heaven because it's been that long since like God has yeah talked to him yes so he's just making that shit up to right I believe that's the case yeah like basically doing the same thing that the devil is doing but in a different way like trying to scare people into doing what he wants Uh, uh, the idea that yeah and and I think you're what you're saying has some credence because um. And and I know we talked very briefly about this last night um, because I watched I had never seen the third movie before um, and so I, I just ended up watching all three because I have no life but um so I watched the first three of these movies I've never watched the fourth and fifth one because it doesn't involve walking but um, the second one actually the the reason he ends up um, walking that comes back to Earth is because the devil um, tosses him out um, because they're basically both attempting the same thing and the devil Lucifer thinks that he, there's, there's no room for both of them. So he just basically ejects him from hell um, to, to get him out of there. Um, so I, I do think there's this idea that like Gabriel is using the tactics of Lucifer and this, they're basically almost like doing the same thing to slightly different ends. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think that's probably right. What you're saying. Anyway, 
Much anyway, better movie. The more I thought about it, I think at some point, like if it's not like an urgent or anything, I think you should watch the second one, not the third. Yeah, one. I might. I think you should watch the second one because the, the more I thought about, it, the more I actually think I do like. The, I really like the prophecy too. Um, I don't know, man. I got I got so much going on in my life. Like, where where can I fit it in? Um, that's a joke. I got nothing because because even though it's recast, uh, Coteus isn't in it. Like, um, this that character is in the second one. Um, well, I, I didn't. Mortensen doesn't play the devil anymore, does he? Uh, no, he doesn't. the uh, The devil doesn't show up in um in the second one um at all. Um. There's there's other angels and stuff like that. Um, uh, Glenn Danzig's in it um, as as an angel. Uh, if that adds anything to. Um, She's saying mother. <laughs> he should. About to see your way. Um, uh, Eric Roberts is in it playing Michael. I uh, see that. But but yeah, that that's more of the. Oh, Brittany Murphy. She plays the, basically the kind of the Amanda Plummer role. Um, in that movie one that's brought back to life um i like Brittany murphy yeah it's a no. shame that she... yeah somebody that we lost like way too early um yeah she was um she talented actress yes yeah but yeah um all right yeah uh the prophecy is something that i liked um it was uh me bledsoe and uh dixon i think that want to go see the prophecy on opening night um when it came out and uh we thought walking was uh, we we thought it was really funny um a lot of it um and it is because there is a lot of like comedy involved with adam goldberg and walking and um in this movie and um like we thought like the gabriel character was hilarious like you know like his disdain for humans and stuff like that calling them talking monkeys and um we thought walken was fantastic and we probably only want to go see this movie because of christopher walken yeah. because of paul fiction um <clears throat> and uh yeah i mean i i don't like it as much as i did then um probably but i still enjoy watching it and i think that there's a lot of great performances i think it's a really interesting way to tell the story um there was somebody from the austin chronicle Mark Zavloff, um, that said it's as confused as it is ambitious, um, and it, it, it uses it's one of those everything but the kitchen sink horror films, um, which I kind of agree with. You know, I mean, it, it tries to employ like a lot of different horror techniques in it, and it's probably too much um, at times. Uh, but it's really like packed full of I think interesting like ideas about theology and stuff like that that um and i'm probably i'm sure it probably has a lot of plot holes if i actually stop to think about it um for even 10 minutes like i'd find a bunch of plot holes but um i think it's just a fun ride ultimately i think it's a it's a fun ride and um i think it's still worth watching still to this day yeah. even if i don't like it quite as much as i used to that's interesting that i used i used to like it more probably and you liked it less and well, right. Well, I mean, I've moved so much further away from reading those Hellblazers that yeah, I can kind of appreciate it now. I mean, I swear to God, I was so mad walking out of this movie. <laughs> I was like, this motherfucker. He just and that's funny. It. I probably read Hellblazer more recently than you then, probably. 
Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I was reading I mean, them in like oh four, I think, when you and Chuck had me read all those Hellblazers. Maybe? Yeah, I've gone back and read like arcs here and there, but it's been yeah. like that was my favorite comic in the mid nineties. Like I loved Hellblazers. I so much. certainly understand it after having read it. Yeah. And it's just so angry that like what they're ripping off like so much shit. Yeah. But then I saw Constantine and saw how bad it was. (laughs) Right. All right. So let's go ahead and move on. So number two on your list is Castle Freak, directed by Stuart Gordon. Has there been a Stuart Gordon that has movies so far from the 80s till now that hasn't been on the podcast? We haven't put um, Dagon on a podcast yet. Okay. What year is that? You know? Two thousand and something. Oh, okay, but so everything else is like in terms of up to this date. Oh, up until yeah, na- yeah. you mean now? Uh, Ninety-five. Yeah, like, I think everything has been on. We haven't talked about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He didn't direct that, though. We just wrote it, right? Yeah. We never talked about dolls. Okay. We also didn't talk about Fortress. Hmm. He directed may, that. Yeah. Hmm. We may never talk about Fortress, so. <laughs> Yes. Unless we do like top five Christopher Amber, then maybe it makes the list. Maybe. Maybe. Um, okay. So, <laughs> directed by Stuart Gordon. Um, it stars Jeffrey, uh, his, 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 his go to star, Jeffrey Combs, uh, Barbara Crampton, uh, also in many of his movies, and Jessica, Jessica Dolleride and Jonathan Fuller. It has a 57% from critics and a 44% from audiences. That is a goddamn um, shame. <laughs> uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and um, why it's on the list? Besides Number the fact one, Stuart Gordon. Those scores are a fucking travesty. <laughs> like this movie is so much better than it has any right to be. Um, it's, it's true. It is true. It's basically like the thing in the walls, I guess, the Lovecraft story. So, guy who's a recovering alcoholic played by combs um and his family have inherited a um castle in latvia or something some eastern european like no tuscany maybe anyway it's somewhere over in europe somewhere um Sorry, I was trying not to pour my drink so loudly. Um, it is in Italy, so it's probably it's somewhere it's probably Tuscany. Here. I'm I'm pretty sure they say sure. Tuscany. Yeah. Anyway, so the opening segment is this old woman like whipping this thing inside a cell in the castle, and then the old woman feeds the cat and dies of a heart attack. Um, and it turns out that her great nephew is Jeffrey Combs, who's an alcoholic. Um whose marriage is on the rocks because um, he got in a drunken car accident that killed um, his young son, youngest, his young son and blinded his teenage daughter and the, his wife can't forgive him for this, um, which rightfully so, because he's kind of a douchebag. Um, so they yes. inherit the castle and move there. Um, immediately, the daughter starts to sense things are amiss um because the creature has bitten off its thumb and um escaped and is now like wandering about um no one believes her at first uh things happen but they kind of chalk it up to the building 
the castle being old. Um, finally, one night after being rejected sexually by, oh, they also think Jeffrey Combs becomes convinced that it's the ghost of his dead son that's inhabiting the castle because he sees a picture of the Contessa, like his aunt, great aunt's son that was supposedly died at a young age and it looks just like his young son. But what had happened is the Contessa had been married to this American guy and they had a kid together and then the American divorced, like left her for another woman and moved to America. And she basically took their kid and locked him in a tower for whatever, 40 years, 30 some years. Um, so one night uh, after getting sexually rejected by his wife, Jeffrey Combs goes to the local bar and gets drunk and he hasn't been drinking at any point before this, but decides to take this moment to go off the wagon. Um, he meets a prostitute who he brings home and attempts to have sex with, but fails because he's still in love with his wife and he's drunk. Um, she then gets kidnapped by, um, fuck, what is, what, what's the kid's name? I'm not, all I can think of now is Guillermo. But um, the castle, the titular castle freak. Um, uh, George, Giorgio. Giorgio. Yeah, Guillermo is close. Um, so because she's gone missing, the local police think that Jeffrey Combs has murdered her. Um, so he gets taken into custody while the freak is still on the loose inside the house, um, the castle, whatever. Um, so it basically takes the youngest daughter prisoner. Um, because it has these like sexual feelings or romantic feelings for her or whatever. Um, and in the end, um, Combs escapes from the police and tussles with the castle freak and ends up sacrificing his own life to kill the creature and save his uh, daughter and his wife. Um, it's filmed on the same set as uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, which we talked about a couple months ago. Um, the story that's told is that basically um, Stuart Gordon went into the office of an executive at full moon and the executive had this poster on the wall that said castle freak. And he was like, yeah, I'll make that movie. And the guy was like, well, the only two conditions are there's got to be a castle and there's got to be a freak. Mm -hmm. And so Stuart Gordon like made the plot and developed everything out of that. Um, I think this movie has some really amazing um, tension that's built for being such a small film that really isn't like, I guess like quote unquote, like about a lot of things, you know, for being like something small, like there really is like number one, the dude that plays the freak does an amazing job of like the way that he contorts his body and like slinks mm -hmm. around and the makeup effects and like the use of like the funeral linen or whatever to like wrap around them to kind of hide his awful appearance like it's just all really well done um special effects are fantastic um it's actually kind of sad like watching the marriage dissolve between these two people mm -hmm. um even though it's completely the father's fault because he's just such a complete asshole and caused his son to die by being a drunk driver um and is so self-obsessed still that like he lets his blind daughter wander off through this castle and doesn't understand like that his wife is trying to offer like just basic human compassion and takes it as a sign that she wants to fuck and tries to basically molest her and i don't know it's just it's it 
it's a relatively brief movie, but you can see Gordon's like mastery as a director, especially of horror, in like almost every aspect of it. And it looks really nice, you know, it's got a got a good satisfying ending that's not like overly happy or anything like that still is a positive ending um and again i think the special effects the makeup practical effects are really good and i love the the monster in it so yeah not much to say but it's just definitely worth watching i yeah i i agree i mean like i think that i mean i've said to you all fair i i i have this movie because we always talk about this, even if we don't talk about it on air, where, like, what my order would be. Um, I have this movie as number one um, on this list, and I haven't seen this movie probably since, like, 96 or something like that, maybe 97, and I did not think I would enjoy it as much as I did. But this is a really, to me, adult um, horror movie. Like, there, there's a lot of things going on in this movie in terms of the relationship dynamics between husband wife um you know uh, mother daughter father daughter um that really make this a very adult family drama and then you have this you know horror aspect thrown into the entire thing that complicates things even more um and it's you're right it's really sad to see like you know um all of this kind of like take place with the family stuff. I mean, um, and I know that like horror gets criticized particularly for like showing sex scenes and stuff like that. Like, Oh, here's the, here's the breasts, you know, and stuff like, and, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would dismiss the sex scene between him and the prostitute that way. Um, I thought it was horrifying to watch that scene play out like on some yes. sort of like family drama psychic level like that they have to f- be forced to watch that because and, and maybe this is my shit like you know but it's like in some ways it's like you're you're dreading him actually going through with that because you understand to some degree why he's going through with it but you don't want him to you want him to make a better decision and um and he doesn't (laughs) and then you're forced to watch it play out in front of you knowing that it's going to be like the end and like destroy like probably what little semblance of like you know relationship him and his wife have left and it's going to destroy that family and then you add the horror aspects in where she's like you know ends up getting tortured by like you know Giorgio the the freak and um yeah i thought this was really good and i thought that it was a really good ending to wrap things up like in terms of like him sacrificing himself um i i honestly had forgotten that after 20 you know three years or whatever 24 years and um yeah i just thought this was a solid movie and i think it is impressive impressive as hell that what was the budget for this it was like a half million dollars or something like that i think yeah 500 grand yep yeah I don't know how this guy like directs this movie um, in something like what it was also like a ridiculous time frame, right? Like something like weeks. Yeah. Like two weeks on like a half a million dollars um, and produces a movie like this. That's so. I, it, there's like a Shakespearean element to this movie to me. 
Yeah. Like, uh, it's it's very classical in nature to me, as ridiculous as that might sound for a movie called Castle Freak. Um, there's, there's a very classical element of the story to me because it does have that intense family drama. And I, I thought it was excellent. It's, it's one of like, I think, again, maybe this sounds fucking absurd too. I, I think it's one of the best movies that we've talked, uh, that, that we've watched, um, in the nineties list so far. I don't just prove that. It's really good. Yeah. On um, the other I, hand, well, sorry, go ahead. Finish up on this movie. Before no, I was going to say that, um, I, I fucked up. It's not a thing in the walls. It's the outsider that it's inspired by. Yeah. You I know, Lovecraft my, better than I do. My I, Lovecraft confused. Actually, so here's here's an aside that still ties in with the um the theme of like nineties horror. So in the early nineties, um, I can't remember if it was cracked or mad. One of those two companies um published a monthly magazine that was comics, horror comics. So it was all story like usually it was like adaptations of um whatever, like famous like older short stories or whatever. Um Plus kind of like reviews and narrative about modern horror movies and whatever. And it was just, it was amazing. Like really great artwork. Um, I have no idea what the comic was called, but they did a version of The Outsider that this movie is based on. It's one of the greatest horror comics I've ever read. Hmm. Um, do you know the story, that story, The Outsider? I don't think I ever read it. Um, it's basically, it's, it's pretty short. It's basically this dude lives in this castle and he's never seen another person and has no like concept outside of just like the darkness that he lives in. So he decides he's going to climb to the highest tower in the castle and he starts to ascend and he climbs and climbs and climbs forever and finally gets to a trap door and pushes it open. And instead of being met with like this dizzying height, he's basically on the ground floor of a building and he realizes that he's inside of like a church and he walks out into a churchyard and he sees this house in the distance so he goes to try and talk to the people and when he gets close to it he's this horrifying monster like glaring at him from the darkness um and he like smacks it and runs away and then you realize at the end that what it was was a mirror and like he had just seen himself and he was a ghoul that had been like undead and living under this um crypt for Hmm. like a long time it's really well written and the first time you read it and then now that i've spoiled it for anyone who's never read it but the first time you read it, like it really is kind of like, oh shit, like he was dead the whole time. Like it's a pretty good, um, pretty good short story. Yeah. Most of Lovecraft's non Cthulian stuff is actually much better than his like great old ones. Not to say that stuff is bad, but there's like a certain dryness to that that like when you read his smaller, more personal, like horror stories, I I I think that they're usually much better. Yeah. Yeah. So I quickly just wanted to move on um, to uh, the remake that I feel like you forced me to watch because you told me how bad it was and that you wanted to talk about it um, in contrast to. Right, I, told you, I, I believe I said you should not watch this movie. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But then you said you want to talk about it in the podcast briefly. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about it. What the fuck? But you watch it. So let's talk about it. No, I'm just. No, 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 no. You said you were going to talk about it on the podcast, so then I feel obligated to like have to watch it at that point. My bad. I shouldn't have. Um, I should have just sprung it on you. Anyway, this movie is fucking terrible. One of the one one of the worst movies I've watched in years. Honestly, I I cannot explain my hatred for this movie 
there's almost no words. So this the concept of Castle Freak, the 1995 movie, is incredibly simple. You know, family inherits a castle. Castle has a creature living in it. Whatever shit happens. The Castle Freak remake, ah, a bunch of douchebags, like complete assholes, yes. are partying, and two of them almost die in a car accident. So, I mean, I guess that's there. The girl gets blinded, then the girl re- finds out that she's inherited a castle, and is still with the douchebag boyfriend that almost killed her because he was fucking high when they got in the car to leave. And then all their douchebag friends come to the castle, but there's a mangled vagina monster thing that lives in the castle because satanic rites from the past or deals with the great old ones or whatever and fucking vagina monster creature like wants to fuck and basically call the gods to earth and Everyone's despicable. There's some dude like doing heroin in the basement for no reason who gets killed by a vagina monster. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's awful. But it's like it, really there was no character that was likable in this movie, and therefore you could not get involved in it. Besides the plot elements and all that kind of stuff, there was just nothing you could get invested in this movie because every character was just fucking awful. So so bad and such like a. Number one, a completely unnecessary remake, but so unnecessary because just no inherent grasp for what made the original good. Yeah. Like, look, I'm not a huge fan of remakes anyway, but you watch stuff like the Suspiria remake and you see the reason for it. Like, it's genuinely making a better movie out of that plot. I don't know, man. It's bad. It's real bad. If you ever see the castle freak and it's on shutter i think right now just skip it like there's no yeah. reason for you to watch this movie yeah ever. honestly the only interesting part of the entire movie was the last like two minutes yeah but even that like you're so desensitized to everything oh yeah if you just take it out of context though it's like oh i might have actually like if the, if this was like what the movie was about like maybe i would have actually it would have been better um but yeah Oh god, and the professor character is the worst in that thing. Um, the fucking professor. Like so bad. So bad. Awful. Alright, so number one on your list is Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions, starring Scott Bakula, uh Kevin J. O'Connor, Fompka Jansen, uh Daniel Never gonna say it. and Daniel Von Bargen. Uh, it is a 60% from critics and a 52% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it is number one on your list? Uh, so based on a short story of his own writing, um, Clive Barker directed this mm, pre-apocalyptic uh, mystical magic horror movie, I guess. Maybe the best way to put it. Hmm. Um, general plot is that, um, there's these two warring magicians, um, Nyx and, uh, Swan, um, Nyx, who's like, a apocalypse, like 
end of the world type magician and Swan who's trying to kind of stop him from doing that. Um, they get in this kind of miss like um, battle of magic in the desert and Nick ends up getting defeated um, and bound and chained and buried um, to stop him from basically bringing about his like apocalyptic vision. So fast forward a decade. Um, Harry Demore, who's a private detective that has some dealings with the supernatural is contracted to come out to Los Angeles. Um, and kind of deal with what they feel is like the impending return of Nick's um, Swan's wife hires him to come out. So uh, it turns out that one of Nick's um, disciples uh, Butterfield, um, probably my favorite character in the whole movie, by the way, played by um, Barry Del Sherman, just cool. as this, like, I don't know, just, I, I, I really dig that character a lot. Um has basically Harry Damore gets like involved in this thing where you think that Swan is dead. So Swan has used his actual real magic powers to create a life, like a fortune as an illusionist, kind of like a Las Vegas type magician, but he's actually doing real magic. So during his performance, um, the he apparently gets murdered um, by having this trick where swords like fall through him, like actually fall through him and kill him. Um, but Butterfield, like in a tussle with Demore, basically says that it's not them that did it. Um, you find out that Swan is still alive and is basically hidden. I keep saying basically. Um, Swan is still alive and has hidden himself from Nix so that Nix can't come and take, well, basically can't come and kill Panther Jansen. I can't help it because like it's, there's so much to talk about in the movie, but I don't want to talk I about understand. the movie forever. Yeah. Right. Um, so basically is my way of encapsulating like 20 saying, minutes. Right. And saying you're conducting the movie. Like, right. Whoa. Scene into one small bit. So basically, um, anyway, Damore and Famke Jansen fall in love for no reason, or they have sex at least. Famke Jansen. No, it's Famke Jansen. It's, I was mm-hmm. going to say it like, my American ass has said her name for 30 fucking years of my life. Fucking ugly American. Okay, got it. Fam- fam- right. She wouldn't mind. She don't care. Some Somebody's talking about her. You know, who's talking about Famke Jansen today? Famke uh-huh. Jansen. My bad. Um, so it all culminates with them going back into the desert uh, where, where Butterfield is resurrecting Nix. Uh, Nix gets resurrected, but you find out that the only thing he cares about is um this love affair that he had with swan like they were um lovers and that that's the person that he wants to be with and he's he's ready to end the world um in order for that to happen so he throws swan's wife into the pits of hell where um demora kind of saves her um one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he just abandons all of his followers all these people that have kept his dream and vision alive for however long the 15 years since he's been dead and he just turns them all into sand and buries them which is fucking awesome Mm -hmm. um even butterfield who he just casts aside his most faithful you know acolyte um and in the end they throw him into a pit like the emperor um where he burns and they save the day um and delmore and the wife are together at the end and that's that's the movie um 
incredibly flawed in some ways, especially the second half of the movie. Not nearly as good as the first half. And really, the first 20 minutes of this movie are by far the best thing in the movie with um, Swan and his team of kind of psychic investigators trying to raid Nix's hideout <clears throat> where Nix is going to sacrifice this young girl, um, which turns out that that was um, the Famke Jansen character as a child that she's grown up and Swan's kind of fallen in love with her, but also taken her under his care so she can be protected um, because her death will bring about the apocalypse, I guess, or at least like open up some door to hell or whatever. Um, but that opening 20 minutes is amazing. The reason I love this movie so much, and honestly, I I wanted to talk about this and I wanted to make it number one because I want to talk about this Hellraiser and um, Nightbreed all at the same time, kind of. Okay. Just in the sense that and it's also sort of appropriate for the end of Pride Month, too, for us to talk about this, because Clyde Barker is one of the first um, artists that I had a great amount of interest in and definitely one of my favorite writers of my teen years that was openly gay, where he wrote about themes about homosexuality and he was not afraid to talk about like themes of you know, the gay community and the feeling of being an outsider and being persecuted and almost these ideas of like power fantasies that he would make where it was, you know, like getting revenge on the, the straight buttoned up culture, especially being British, you know, that condemned him and made his lifestyle like a crime in a lot of ways. Um, and it was really bold and really brave. And like, even though like, I'm not gay, like, I think it gave me a greater appreciation for the idea that people whose lifestyles were completely different than mine could still have valid points right. and could still provide some insight into the human condition that I might not get otherwise. Um, which was actually pretty eye opening for me as a teenager, because, you know, when you grew up in Cecil County, like sure. you didn't really talk about like everyone was basically, if you didn't act the same as everyone else, like people made fun of you and like you were bullied and right. just reading this stuff. And well, we, were I think too, that, we were too busy playing smear the queer which is that football right. game like you know like where the person who had the ball was called the queer i mean like that was common around this area. Right, right, right. Just use those things you know yeah like all the pejoratives you would yeah, use right. anyway so reading things like barker's books and watching his movies because i saw all three of those movies pretty much contemporaneously when they came out especially nightbreed and um, lord of illusions hell hellraiser i saw a little later than when it came out when I was a teenager, not probably like 10 or 11, which I probably was too young to see that movie. But regardless, um, I think that it's, it's amazing that this guy, because Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions are pretty flawed movies. They're both too long. They're both kind of meandering and they both get really too hung up in the idea of like the other not being accepted by society and trying to find a way to I don't know what the word I'm looking for is like not justify their existence but validate their existence does that make sense and I mean that's kind of like Nightbreed you know is 100% about that because that's the whole theme is like him trying to find this place where he fits in um, and Lord of Illusions is that too and but it's 
funny that it takes the openly because uh, Butterfield, I think you're supposed to assume is is gay, um, just in his mannerisms and some of the things he says. But Nix is a hundred percent gay, and the fact that he the idea of the movie is that he's coming back from the dead and the only thing he cares about is reclaiming his lover is a pretty powerful thing. And I think it's really bold in 1995, even though you make the guy the villain to make a gay plot line, like in a major motion picture release. Right. Like I'm really surprised that they let him, you know, keep that in there. Um, and I know that the studio made him cut it and that basically it's not the movie that he wanted to release. Um, but it's pretty interesting that it even exists. And I just think that I agree with you completely. I think Castle Freak is the better movie and the more enjoyable movie. Um, I think that Clyde Barker, after making this movie, realized direction was not for him, that he should just be behind the scenes and like writing the movies. Um, but man, like I, I really like his visual ideas of how magic looks Mm -hmm. um i really like his ambition and trying to create this entire like fully formed universe and do it's so close in that first like 20 minutes yeah where if that's the whole movie this is one of the best movies of the 1990s in terms and maybe the best like horror movie about magic ever just because of everything like the visual aesthetic the language you know, he's very precise and specific in the way he writes things. So when people say things like there's weight and import to the things they're saying and it makes it feel like the performances are better, like that Nick's performance in the opening, one of my favorites. Yes, agreed. Like for as brief as it is, like it's so yeah. good because his he just like oozes like evil and charisma. And it's like I it agree. Feels... I love the setting of that as well. Like they're like sanctuary, like yeah, it's, it's just the dirtiest, fucking scummiest place you can imagine. Like, and these are people that have just given up all, right, everything for this guy. Like, yeah, it feels like it feels like they raided the sets of like for a few dollars more or something, and just like defiled everything in them. And I love Nick's like wearing a shirt that's just like slightly too small for him right. so that his like pot belly like sticks out like and like it, it, it shows you like how cultish the entire right. thing is like somehow like like you get the idea of like gluttony and hedonism and yeah. like worldly abandon kind of and without mm-hmm. having to say anything just by looking at like the way that that Barker sets the scene and you know dresses the set and dresses the people and it's just um yeah i i love the first 15 minutes of that movie yeah pretty amazing that it's so good and again i think it's i i think he's just too ambitious in making it like if he would have made the movie a little smaller and not tried to push as much into it like it could have been amazing yeah i think um i think bacula does a good job as harry uh damore yes um it's just that they I think just on the one of the other leads, I think I think everybody does a pretty good job in this movie. Um, I think Fomka uh, Jansen is fucking terrible in this movie. Agreed. Yeah, she's the worst part of it. Um, But she really isn't there for anything but just being like she's a prop. You know, she's just a prop that has dialogue. Yeah. Like there's nothing she's doing to advance the plot 
except for existing. And ultimately, that's the thing is that Swan, you know, the magician that supposedly saved her, is this fucking creep that just took this child that he rescued from being murdered and, you know, um, groomed her so he could eventually, like, marry her and fuck her. Right. Which is, like, super uncomfortable, like, to think about that. Yeah. You know, he's a fully grown man when he rescues this eight-year-old and then 12 years later, 15 years later, when she's a woman, you know, he's like, hey, I'm going to bed you or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think also that's part of what Barker's saying, too, in the sense that, like, Nick's, you get the impression that Nick's was grooming Butterfield and Swan for the same thing. Uh Um, So is Swan really any better than, you know, this villain that he supposedly killed? Sure. Um, And ultimately, like, he pays the price for that, too, because he ends up dying, Um, even though it's, like, sacrificial, you know. But flawed you know again i think it's too long um some of the dialogue is kind of clunky but there's a lot of ambition there i wish barker would have had the chance to make a fully funded movie with some constraint to it like barker really needed an editor of some kind or a collaborator that was a director that could have shown him like okay like let's not you know like extend this scene out or let's not put all this stuff in let's kind of trim it um, but still, I think it's a really good movie. I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah. No. I, yeah, I did too. I mean, um, what what did you say? Like off air? Like you know, you, you quoted Tennyson, or, or oh, yeah, um, his his reach exceeds his grasp, yeah, and like right, all these things yeah. that he does. Um, no, that's Browning. Sorry. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 you feel that here. Um, like there, there are so many things that I like about this movie, and like um, yours is much more meaningful um, and articulate about like what you take away from this movie in terms of like um, Barker's role um, um, as being a gay man and um, the stories that he writes. I I look at it more from the idea of the supernatural detective um, aspect of the Demore character and. I read a little bit about this character because I was just trying to almost put it in my own timeline in my head of the PI who investigates supernatural things as opposed to like the traditional PI. And because I'm so into like, you know, like things like detective fiction, detective films and stuff like that, that like I, I, I wanted to kind of, I didn't know this and maybe you do. Did you ever read like the Hellraiser comics from like 10 years ago or whatever? Cause I was reading a little bit about those where the more, um, is thrown in in the comics is investigating basically the Cenobites from the Hellraiser mm-hmm. stuff. I read the Hellraiser comics from the early nineties. Right. Yeah. That so this dark, was just something that like dark that. Horse put out. I guess. I, uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah. This is Boom Studios. I think. Um, if I remember, Boom. Yeah. Boom with an exclamation point. So they put out like these comics like ten years ago that Barker wrote, um, and it's basically like the, the more character. Um, there's stuff about a hell priest and stuff like that. I'm assuming that's the pinhead character to some degree, and like it's 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 the more kind of like uh, fighting them in some ways. Um, but there's also a novel that Barker wrote like five years ago or something that like doesn't follow that timeline, but also involves the more and the Cenobites. Um, and, but I just think it's, uh, I, I think that character is really interesting because you don't see a lot of those become prominent. 
um, ever. It's like if you really think about like people that are traditional PIs and not people that like kind of become PIs, like to some small degree. Because I would say going back, I mean, there's a lot of things that tie into all this. Like there's, um, it's like where do you see private investigators that get involved in the supernatural stuff? It's, it's go back one movie Lovecraft, right? Yeah. It ca- um, cast a deadly spell. That's it. Cast really. a deadly spell film wise. Right. You know, um, that we just talked about a while ago. Um, I think you can make the argument. Somebody can make the argument, but he's not a traditional PI. Um, is that Constantine like falls to some sure. degree under that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's not a traditional PI, even though he looks like a PI. Um, he's not a traditional PI. So really, you don't have a lot. And then you have Jim Butcher, who starts writing novels in 2000 with the Dresden File stuff, um, who's a PI that investigates supernatural things. So um, you really only have the Lovecraft characters um, that are PIs, the the couple of them. Um, and... I, and look, I know I'm pretty sure like Roddenberry, I can't remember the name of the movie, but like uh, Roddenberry wrote one and there's there's been some throughout time. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've oh, there's um casting casting the bones. Okay. Or casting the runes that became a uh, Knight of the Demon. Mm, okay. That's actually probably the after Lovecraft, like the prototypical um private investigator in the supernatural. Gotcha. So, like, I mean, I, I've read enough into it to know that there's, like, movies and books that, like, one, one-offs that feature these things, but nothing that's become so popular that, like, they've become popularized. I, 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 think, it's, I, I think it's a fascinating concept. Um, and this is one of the few characters that I think, like, you know, if, and maybe it's just time-wise, but it's like a lot of people might remember this movie enough that you could kind of slot him in um as yeah. as as a prototypical occult pi um I mean, it makes it, it makes sense from a narrative standpoint too because it's you think of bis especially if you set it during like maybe the mid mid midpoint of the century like the 40s or the 70s like think about um uh fuck um the long goodbye or whatever mm-hmm. right um yeah. think about that character like investigating a murder and starting to find right whatever like otherworldly elements to it and i i don't know i think that's i I agree i think it's a really fascinating conceit yeah that isn't explored enough i mean i cast a deadly spell is i think the perfect perfect example of where 100 percent works and definitely like shows how great those two things melded together can be so. Right, and such a fascinating conceit for me because that I, not knowing Jim Butcher existed at the time, um, and was actually doing something like in novels with that stuff. Um, that if you remember, I took um, just so everybody knows the the best name that I, I stole it from a Cecil County Road here. The best name that I've ever had in my entire life for a character is Jackson Station. Um, that you just shortened to Jack, um, but um i've used this in two different things that i've started writing but one of them if you remember frank was a supernatural pi like a like a call pi um, i do remember yeah um that I, that I was trying to like use that name with and it's such it's such a fascinating conceit that i was like actually started trying to like write something like you know with an occult pi because i hadn't seen it enough the only times i'd ever seen it is the couple of craft stories that i've read that involve those and this movie um largely because i hadn't seen cast the deadly spell at that time 
Um, so I've always found it a fascinating idea of like, you know, these detectives that end up like stumbling upon paranormal things. And <clears throat> so that, that concept of this movie is something that I still think is unexplored to this day. Um, and I would love to see more of it. Um, but yeah, like it, just, just in terms of like PI history, like that off that weird offshoot of like a cult PIs, like I, I think this is really pivotal um, um, in 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 that like little niche that I investigate all the time of like PIs and like how like they you know are portrayed and stuff like that. Um, so since you brought up um, Jackson Station and your uh, um the story that you were writing let's let's i don't i don't don't like where this is gone let's talk briefly about the zach brave pipeline and how and i blame you 100 percent. nobody sold archers yet just so you know what's that nobody sold archers yet but from me i'm sure it's been stolen in some (laughs) small way um chris and i were talking in i don't know like 2002 maybe about all these ideas for stuff that we wanted to do. And this is back when both of us had dreams and ambitions and weren't like dead inside for the most part. So Chris had this idea to write this movie and he called it Tartuffery, I think, right? Isn't that the bit? It is. And the basic premise, like he had this, you know, I'm not even going to talk about the premise. I'm just going to talk about why we call it the Zach Bray pipeline. So he had this idea and this premise and he had, like even like written scenes out and he was talking about dialogue and how things would play out in the movie and really well realized and fully formed idea. And we spent maybe like two hours talking about it one day at Dunkin Donuts, just like drinking coffee and hanging out. And I swear to God, like three months later, fucking garden state came out and garden state was his movie. Some minor changes, but for the most part, like a hundred percent, like what he had created and uh-huh. we started to talk about this idea that somehow in Chris's car, there was this mystical pipeline that went directly to Zach Brafe and Zach Brafe was just stealing ideas. And then every time we would talk about something and then like months later, or like years later, the Revenant is a good example. Revenant is a good example. Um, so, so let me just say real quick, though, um, about like this whole Garden State Tartuffery thing is. um, um is that the idea, like the the basic concept of Tartuffery was a guy who was um, considered a genius as a young person who had this famous professor um, father, and he ends up um, um, writing a tell-all about his genius childhood and basically outs his father as like this adulterer this like you know guy who is like you know half fake is like this famous well-known professor um and then ends up having to and then leaves um and because he's made so much off his book he ends up like leaving living in a college town never attends college himself um and like ends up basically just like partying throughout like most of his life um and then ends up having to go home when his mother is dying for the first time in 15 years. And you end up finding out that the real like reason his father and him had a falling out is that like the, um, uh, he had the family dog put down, 
Um, and the son always disagreed with the rationale behind having the family dog put down. And I always pictured, rather than Ian Holm, I always pictured Victor Newman in the role of the father um, from The Young and the Restless, Eric Braden. But so that's the basic premise. But there was enough little things that we talked about as we talked about that that like ended up almost exactly in Garden State. And I just want to say this is that my story, I think about like the whole thing being because Garden State is like the whole falling out falls is comes from the mother dying. Right. Which still is a similarity there. It's like the mother's dying in the one that we talk about. And like, you know, the mother's dead. And that's the reason for the falling out to some degree. Um, like the final straw. I think the idea that it actually goes back to like the age of like fucking nine when the dog is put down. And that's like really what's underlying the entire thing is a much more nuanced subtle and realistic thing than the fucking mother dying so fuck you See? zach brave <clears throat> you hear that passion that zach, zach brave. so if anybody ever has a chance to talk to zach brave so there's on. revenant right but he's only stolen the title for that like that, that the title's only been stolen for that That wasn't right? zach brave anyway but i mean there's definitely revenant if look if if i ever complete anything in my entire life that way it's going to be what used to be called revenant <laughs> yeah which you Star, just gifted me. You just gifted me that right. You just gifted me that title because you had a title. You, I stole that title from you. Like you gifted it to me. Yeah, I wanted to um, make a movie in like 1994 with that title. Right. I had this really great idea for a cowboy zombie western. Yeah. And yeah. then when I started, ta- and then when we started talking about that, and I started like developing it out. There's like fucking like six issues that are done of this comic. Well, <laughs> there's only one that's been drawn. So, and I kind of lost interest, but. <laughs> I still got that shit. Yeah. All right. Anyway, good, good, good talk. Good podcast. <laughs> this is, so just so you know, like that right there is um. The, I gotta, for, I gotta, I gotta. I, 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 I know you do, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just prolong it for another thirty seconds. I'm just is gonna go. Frank, Frank is infamous for when he's standing there talking to you wherever he's at, um, for pulling out his car keys when he's done for the night. And, like, after a while, like, if it continues on when he's pulled his car keys out, he starts uh, jingling them. Um, and, like, almost, like, as, I don't know if he's trying to, uh, like, uh, mesmerize you, like, and, like, call your attention to it, or if it's just, like, this anxious tick. Well, I've never determined that, but... um But, yeah, he, like, jingles his car keys, like, as a sign that, like, he's ready to, to, to wrap it up. Time to um, go. And and when Frank did that abruptly, um, he also does the same thing on Zoom calls where it's like, well, all right, all right I'm to going bed. to bed. Yeah. Right. When you've had enough, you've had enough. It's time to end it. You know, you got to drag shit out, weirdos. So thanks for listening. <laughs> Have a good week, everybody. See you later.